Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going to continue our study now of the history of Christianity and of Christendom in the British Isles. Last week, you remember, we got uh, audaciously from the first century to the 14th uh, century. And tonight we're going to uh, go back to that subject. But before we do, I want us to read some scripture. And I'm going to be reading the scripture because either tonight or another Sunday night, we're going to be talking about the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible is an English version of the Bible that predates the King James. The King James was translated and published in 1611. The Geneva Bible was written and published in 1560. It was translated into English by members of John Knox's congregation in Geneva, Switzerland, while he was studying under John Calvin. And so the best of the Reformed world went into this book in the translation of it. One of the strengths of it, it also has running commentary, you know, sort of like a Schofield reference Bible, that it has running commentary on the pages that's Calvinistic, that is socially and politically explosive for any age of tyrants. And in fact, the reason King James of England had the King James translation translated, great pervert and tyrant that he was, was to wean England off the footnotes of the Geneva Bible. But as we'll see at another occasion, it took a long time for them to do that. And America, when the pilgrims and the Puritans came to America and built this country on the Bible, it wasn't the King James Version they brought over, it was the Geneva Bible. One of the things that I think will impress you as I read the scripture this evening is if I hadn't told you how old this was, you would have thought it was a relatively modern translation. So our first text this evening is Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and be ashamed. Bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none other God and there is nothing like me. Which declare the last thing from the beginning and from of old, the things that were not done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do whatsoever I will. I call a bird from the east and the man of my counsel from afar, from afar. As I have spoken, so I will bring it to pass. As I've purposed it, I will do it. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, from these passages, you remember last week we uh, tried to develop a philosophy of history, a reason why Christians should seek to understand history, and we'll review that in just a second. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 and following. Then shall be the end. When he has delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he has put down all rule and all authority and power. I think that verse is a better translation of the King James and a better translation of the New American Standard Version. Let me read it again. Then shall be the end, when he has delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he has put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. 
uh, excuse me, verses uh, 5 through 11. But with many of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things are our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed fornication and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted him and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things came unto them for examples, and were written to admonish or to instruct us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Then one more in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, let us also, seeing that we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, cast away everything that presses down, And the sin that hangs so fast on, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, if you'd like to see this version and look at it very carefully, I'm going to lay it right here and you can look at it after church and see if you can read it. Now, from those four passages of Scripture, we have sufficient reason to say and sufficient basis to say That a Christian, if he's going to have any success in living the Christian life, has got to know and understand and appreciate and feel a part of and sense the flow of history. And the four words that we saw last week are these. Pattern, progress, example, or instruction, and encouragement. That because God is sovereign and has foreordained everything that comes to pass, there is a plan or a pattern in history. And once you understand that, you're able to see a unity to it. You're able to figure out and and, and realize why things happen the way they do. That history is not just a, a collection of unrelated events. There's unity, significance, meaning to it all. Because of the pattern, the plan that a, a sovereign God has uh, placed on it. Secondly, there's progress to it. Uh, the kingdom of God continues to advance. The Christ is sitting on the throne and he's going to put all things under his feet. And so there's progress and there's development in history. We don't expect to see things go downhill. We don't expect to see things stagnate. There's an upward uh, climb of history because of the triumph of the kingdom of God. And so that as you study history, it encourages you to see uh, how God overcomes his enemies. And you're able to see your position. You may be in a, a position where Christians are on the run. But when you look at it in the overall scheme of things and you see the upward move of history, then you don't get discouraged quite so easy. The third word is the word uh, instruction. That God has given church, uh, us church history with all kinds of examples of how to live the Christian life, how not to live the Christian life, how to face the world, how not to face the world. So that as you study history from a biblical perspective, you learn a great deal about God and about God's hand and about uh, how to live the Christian life. And then the last word is encouragement, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That seeing how God's people live before us in similar and worse situations and growing from them and being encouraged from them is one of the primary uh, blessings of a knowledge of church history. 
Last week, you remember, we looked at the uh, introduction of Christianity into the British Isles back in the first century, possibly, and went all the way up to the 14th and 15th century. Now I want us to go back again to that same period of history and look at something else that we didn't look at last week, but which is vitally important that we understand and appreciate. In the Reformation of England during the 16th and 17th centuries, of course, the English Bible played a central role. So what I want us to do tonight, just so you could, because you didn't learn this in public school, is I want you, I want us to study the history of the Bible translated into English. And I want you to see that we have a long-standing history in this subject. For instance, the first attempt to put the Bible into English, of course, Anglo-Saxon English, was of all things in 670 A.D. See, the King James Version is a modern translation. The first attempt to put any part of the Bible into English was in 670 A.D. by a Celtic Saxon poet singer by the name of Cadman. Cadman loved to sing, was a good singer, played on a harp, and he would have the monks translate portions of the Bible out of Latin into English, and then he would put the poetic paraphrase. It wasn't really translation, it was a paraphrase. But he would take these English translations and sing them to the people. And the first attempt to put any of the Bible into English was when it was sung into English by this man named Cadman in 670 A.D. Then the second time we read about any part of the Bible put in English was in 709 A.D. I want you to keep track of the dates now because I want you to see how much of the Bible was translated into English in the earliest days. In 709, there was a monk, an abbot by the name of Aldhelm, who also was a great singer and a musician on a harp. And he had an evangelistic heart. In that what he would do would be to dress in the clothing of a minstrel and he would sit on a bridge that was one of the leading bridges into the town where he was, where everybody had to come and go to and from the market. And skilled musician that he was, he'd sit there on the bridge and he'd play his harp, all kinds of popular tunes of his day. And then when a crowd gathered around to hear him play on his harp, all of a sudden he'd start singing paraphrases of the scriptures in an attempt to preach and witness to them through song. He also was the first translator of the Psalms into English. And he asked another man who did it to translate the Gospels into English. 709. 150 Psalms, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The next time is by a great man named the Venable Bede, Mr. Bede, Reverend Bede, lived between 674 and 735. I recommend you his book. You can still buy his most famous book for which he has been famous, yea, these many years. You can buy it at Oxford, Borders, Barnes and Noble, no Christian bookstore, but all the secular bookstores, you can buy his book. The title of it is something like A History of the English Church and People. It's a book put out by Penguin, paperback, and he wrote it sometime between 674 and 735. 
He was the most famous English Christian scholar of that whole era, and he translated the Gospel of John into English. The story of his death and its connection with his translation is a moving one. This was written by somebody who knew him, a close friend. All through the day before Ascension Day, 735, Bede had been dictating his translation of the Gospel of John. For he said, I do not want my boys, the monks, to read a lie or to work to no purpose after I'm gone. On the evening of that day, he had one chapter left remain untranslated. The great scholar knew he was very near death. So early on the morning of Ascension Day, his secretary said, Dear Master, there's one more chapter yet to do. Take thy pen and write quickly, said Bede. All through that day, interrupted by saying farewells to the brethren of the monastery, he painfully translated on. Just as night came, his sobbing scribe leaned over and whispered to the dying man, Master, there's one more sentence in the Gospel of John to translate. And Bede said, write quickly. The scribe wrote on, and he said, dear master, it's done now. Bede said, yes, it is done now. And he died. There is no trace of this translation. The next time is King Alfred the Great. Now, we talked last night in the question and answer period about... Queen, uh, king Alfred the Great. He was the only king called the Great in England. He was well deserving of the name. He was used of God to revive spiritually the church, to defend the state, to encourage the school and education, and to codify the laws of England. He was the greatest of English kings. He whipped the Vikings, protect, protected England from the Vikings, signed a peace treaty with the Vikings, on the spot led the king of the Vikings to Christ, a man by the name of Guthrum, and had him baptized. He himself would translate Augustine into English out of Latin. He was a great Christian. He loved to expound the Word of God and expound theology. So one particular book he translated by Augustine was just about this thin, about a half of an inch, say, thin. The, in Latin. But when it came out in English, it was a monstrosity. But, and he never tells you when he quits translating and when he starts commenting on the book. So it's a mixture of Augustine and King Alfred. He caused part of the Bible to be translated. You've heard of, the, of common law. And you know how common law has been the basis of jurisprudence in the West for over a thousand years. The reason that common law, unwritten, uh, which is a consensus historically throughout the West, is there is because around the year 900, King Alfred was the first man to codify the laws of the Angles and Saxons and put them in one book. And of course, being a Christian who didn't know better than to be a theonomist, most of the codified laws of the Angles and Saxons was Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so there you have King Alfred translating the Ten Commandments into English, translating various laws out of the Pentateuch into English, and also caused another Psalter to be translated. About 50 years after King Alfred's death, there was another man by the name of Aldred, 
And Aldred was the first man that we know of to translate completely the four Gospels into English. He took a Latin text and wrote the English between the lines of the Latin text. The Latin text belonged to a man who was the bishop of Lindisfarne, and the text is called the Lindisfarne Gospel or the Book of Kells. And here's a copy of some of the art in it that is uh, absolutely gorgeous. This, the, this art and this translation, as we said, goes back to 950 at least and beyond. And uh, Bishop Usher that we talked about the other day who put the chronology in the scriptures, whose confession of faith was the model for the Westminster Confession of Faith, owned this book, the original book. Uh, upon his death, his daughter wanted to sell it to a buyer in, uh, on the continent of Europe. But Oliver Cromwell found out about it, had no intentions of letting a book that great leave the British Isles, and so he forbade her to sell it, and it remains to this day in the University of Dublin. If you'd like to see this, there that is. Then in the year 1000, there was a man named Alfred who translated the Gospels into English, and it was the first time the Gospels were translated into English with no accompanying Latin texts. There are six known copies of this translation still in existence. And the oldest was done in the year 1000. This man, Alfred, later became Archbishop of Canterbury and, and translated into English Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Esther, Job, and part of Kings. There's an interesting comment in some of his translating notes. He says that in translating these books, he's made use of his translation uh, of his older translations. In other words, he's translating based upon things other people have translated, and we don't have the slightest idea what they were. A lot of these older translations were destroyed during the tremendous destruction caused by the Vikings, and then later on by the devastation of England by the Norman, which leads us to William the Conqueror. The great Norman conquest of the Anglo-Saxons of England, you remember the battle? Surely you learned the battle even in public schools. Surely of all that you did learn this one date and this one battle somewhere in public schools about how William the Conqueror, the Norman killed, took over Anglo-Saxon England at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. He crushed the Anglo-Saxons and the Britons and the Celts and he outlawed the Anglo-Saxon English and substituted in its place Anglo-Norman English, which was uh, greatly influenced by French. The old Anglo-Saxon English was not allowed to be spoken in the courts or the schools. It was not, no books were allowed to be published in Anglo-Saxon. And the only place that Anglo-Saxon continued to be spoken was in cloistered monasteries and, and in the homes of peasants. It couldn't be used in literature. So here all the British Isles had to learn a new language. The old language was forbidden, and through that confusion of tongues, there was the prevention of any kind of production of good literature, and the Bible, for the next 150 years, uh, there was no good translations because everything was in such chaos. But in 1215, anybody know anything else about that era, 1215? What the nobles made uh, King John do, signed the Magna Carta? 1215, there is... There was a man who lived named Orm, O-R-M, and his translation of 20,000 lines is still in existence in Oxford University. 
It's a metrical version of portions of the Gospels and of the book of Acts to be sung in worship services. Orm was an Augustinian monk. His translation is not a real translation. It's a paraphrase. He has running explanatory notes with it. Interestingly enough, the vocabulary is Anglo-Saxon, though the syntax and grammar is Norman. He also trans... That's confusing. He also translated the... uh, Genesis and Exodus into English. Then in no translation, this is an interesting fact, no translation of any book of the Bible after the Norman conquest in 1066 uh, appeared until the middle of the 14th century. None for almost 300 years, except for one book. What do you think that one book is? The Psalter, the 150 Psalms. And in the year 1320, there were two versions of the Psalms in English that came out. One from southern England by a man named William Shoreham from Kent. And one in northern England by a man named Richard Roll from Yorkshire. In one translation by Roll, he has a commentary to help the local preacher understand the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms was so widely used in English that for more than a century... That was about the only book that leading Christian scholars studied in the British Isles. These translations of the Psalms by Shoreham and Roll were completely distributed and in full use about the time of the birth and the youth of John Wycliffe. These translations of the Psalter widely known throughout England, created a thirst for larger portions of the Word of God, which John Wycliffe was to be used of God to do. I think you need to know for your literature classes that the modern English that you know and that you learn evolved and developed because of these English psalters. You have there before you a little uh, comparison of translations. You see it? It compares three translations. It compares a translation of the Lord's Prayer by King Alfred in Old Anglo-Saxon English. That was around the year 900. Uh, It says 971, but really 871 to 901. Right around the year 900. So you see how they spoke English then. Then the second line is John Wycliffe's English, and he wrote in 1382. And then the last, the third line in each one of those paragraphs is from the New American Standard Version. And so you, you see what, how I did it? The first line in each one of those paragraphs was King Alfred. The second line was John Wycliffe. The third line, the New American Standard Version. Uh, try pronouncing it. We'll not do it tonight. But remember that the Anglo-Saxons originated in Saxony, Germany. And so feel free to use all the guttural expressions you want to use on those first lines. And you will have a pretty good shot at how they were translated how they were, uh, that is, verbalized. So you can see something here of the evolution of the English language by these translations of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, well, let's go on. We can make some comments about that that would be fun, but we won't. All right. Now, let's talk about the revival of biblical Christianity in England under John Wycliffe in the 14th century. Two hundred years before the Reformation. Now, when did Reformation start? Keep some figures in mind. 1066, the Battle of Hastings, the Normans whipped the Anglo-Saxons. 1492, Columbus discovered America. 1517, thereabout. 
Martin Luther pounded 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, and these were issues that he disagreed with the church on and wanted them publicly debated. And that's usually uh, nails down, so to speak, the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 200 years before Luther pounded the, the uh, thesis on the door at Wittenberg, England was already growing weary under the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church and particularly the Pope. And you remember, I, I refer you to the comments that we made last week. So in 1329, John Wycliffe was born. You spell his name, I think, W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E. W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E. Something happened when he was a young boy that hit him like a blast of a trumpet from God. In 1348, anybody know what happened in 1348? In 1348, the Black Plague hit. The Black Plague hit Europe and Asia and killed half of the human race. It hit England while John Wycliffe was a young man and he saw countless numbers of people die of this judgment of God, which he took as a judgment of God, and never got over that. He became an eloquent preacher of the gospel who constantly accused the Roman Catholic clergy of England of having banished the Bible from their churches and he was always calling for the reestablishment of the Word of God back in the English churches. Understand that by now, the Roman Catholic Church in England and throughout the world was basically a religion of superstition. The crowds loved to hear John Wycliffe preach. Especially when he defended the rights of English kings against Roman Catholic aggression. Listen to a paragraph from one of his sermons and you can see why he got in serious trouble. England does not belong to the Pope. The Pope is but a man subject to sin. But Christ is the Lord of Lords and this kingdom is held directly and solely of Christ alone. The gospel is the only source of religion. The Roman pontiff is a mere cut purse and far from having the right to reprimand the whole world. He may be lawfully reproved by his inferiors and even by laymen. Well, you can imagine how much a pope enjoyed his preaching. Well, no sooner had he got in trouble with the pope than Wycliffe began preaching in England that Christ alone is the king of the church. That brought him into conflict with the English kings. Most particularly, King Richard II in 1377, who was only 10 years old at the time but who was intimidated by Pope Gregory X to denounce Wycliffe as a heretic and treat him as a common outlaw. Dutifully young 10-year-old Richard II did. So now we've got a heretic and an outlaw in John Wycliffe. During this time in his life, Wycliffe was consumed with a vision of carrying the gospel to the most remote little hamlets and villages throughout the British Isles. And so to carry out that vision and to put skin and bone on it, he created an itinerary evangelistic organization of preachers who had the responsibility of preaching the gospel everywhere all over the British Isles and beyond. These preachers, itinerant evangelistic preachers, were called poor priests 
They went everywhere, not only disputing Roman Catholic doctrine, but preaching the gospel. And they came to be known as Lollards. Now you ask, well, why did these preachers of Wycliffe be called Lollards? Well, there's one or two, one of, you can take your pick, between one of two roots of the word Lollard. There is a Dutch root and there is a Latin root. The Dutch root of the word Lollard means to sing. And so it would be very reasonable to think that they were called Lollards because they went everywhere singing psalms. So a Lollard was a psalm singer. By the way, as you see as you'll study history, both England and Europe was psalms sung into Reformation. So maybe they called because they were singers. They loved to sing the psalms. But I figure it's probably a derogatory phrase because most labels for Christians are, like Puritans and the TRs and the like. And uh, there is a Latin root for the word Lollard. Now, remember, Lollard was a Wycliffeite who went around uh, as part of Wycliffe's evangelistic organization. The Latin word means tares. That is, weeds intermingled with Catholic wheat. So probably, in my opinion, that's where the word came from. These are tares. These are Lollards. They're trying to mix weeds in with the pure Roman Catholic wheat. But anyway... They became so powerful and influential in Great Britain that the Roman clergy, as you can imagine, became alarmed at their preaching, what they were preaching, and how influential their preaching was becoming. And so a law was passed to arrest and uh, imprison all these Lollards. But in the early days, the authorities were unable to do so because they were usually protected by the people who surround them when people came out to arrest them. After creating this itinerant evangelistic organization... John Wycliffe had a deeper longing in his heart to put the Bible in permanent possession of the people of England. He saw a need of translating the Bible into English. I mean, after all, English has evolved, as you've seen here. And so there needs to be a new translation of the Bible into English. The the people of England at this time couldn't read the Bible for a couple of reasons. One, the church wouldn't allow it. And secondly, because the available copies were all written in Latin. These earlier English versions that we've already talked about by King Alfred and these other fellows, they were convenient locked away in obscure monasteries and the libraries of those monasteries where nobody could get to them. Because the Roman Catholic Church of the day believed that Bible reading by laity was injurious, harmful to laymen and they shouldn't read the Bible. But the time was ripe for a new English translation. Not only was there a new need because of the fact that all the Bibles were in Latin and the people spoke English, but because Wycliffe's version, uh, because uh, earlier versions were in different languages, and now there need to be one in the language of the people of that day. And so sometime between 1380 and 1384, 1380 and 1384, a couple hundred years before the Protestant Reformation, Wycliffe completed his translation of the Bible. That translation was widely circulated throughout the British Isles. And it had a great reviving influence upon men's hearts. It enlightened men's minds. It converted men's souls. Even King Richard II's wife, Anne of Bohemia, was a devoted reader of Wycliffe's Bible. And one contemporary writer said, and I quote, and this is an important quote, 
you could not meet two persons on the highway, but one of them was Wycliffe's disciple. So according to a contemporary of Wycliffe, his influence was such as to bring over 50, or about 50% of the English population under the influence of his Bible and of his doctrine, which was increasingly reformed. By the way, there are about 170 manuscripts of this Wycliffe Bible still in existence to this very day. But not everybody rejoiced at Wycliffe's translation of the Bible. Once again, the clergy opposed it, believing it to be heresy to speak of the Holy Scriptures in English. And so efforts were being made in the church and in Parliament to confiscate and destroy all copies of Wycliffe's Bible. Having given England a Bible in her own tongue, Wycliffe now began to study that Bible and to reflect upon its contents. From that moment on, his theology became more and more biblical, more and more reformed. You would have thought that he lived during the time of Knox and Calvin and the rest, and not 200 years earlier. And as a result of his studying the Bible, he began to attack transubstantiation and the mass as heretical, idolatrous, blasphemy. And what's transubstantiation? It is the view of Roman Catholicism that, that during the taking of the Lord's Supper, when you take the Lord's Supper, the wine becomes blood of Christ and the bread becomes the flesh of Christ, very literally. And he began to denounce that as heretical and idolatrous and blasphemy. Because of these comments, his enemies sought to destroy him and silence him. He was excommunicated from the church. His friends at this point deserted him. They were afraid of what might happen. The civil government stood against him. It was obvious that storm clouds were on the horizon and John Wycliffe stood all alone. And the storm soon burst on him. However, in the middle of May of that year, in two, at 2 o'clock p.m., when the church council was about to pronounce the sentence upon Wycliffe, a severe earthquake shook the whole city of London, and the council quickly adjourned the meeting, fearing that it might be a sign of God. It is interesting when you read the life of Wycliffe to see how often he was rescued from his enemies by unexpected acts of divine providence. We're going to re- I'll tell you about some of them. Some, uh, soon after his writings were condemned, Pope, Pope Gregory XI in 370, who was harassing him and seeking to destroy him, suddenly died. That ended all further persecution by Pope Gregory XI of John Wycliffe. <laughs> Several times Wycliffe was tr- summoned before the Archbishop of Canterbury to be silenced, but he was always dismissed. They never found him. They never could get him on anything. Either or because the people of London uh, came to his side and started demonstrating in his behalf or because some great lords intervened in his behalf or because of some uncommon providence of God that scared these persecuting bishops to death. But at length his doctrines were condemned. The assault on John Wycliffe, who's translated the Bible now into English, by church authorities began to increase. Wycliffe grew older and weaker, but his bold biblical preaching never wavered in spite of more and more attacks against him. In November 1382, he presented a petition to the House of Commons in Parliament. You ready? Now, in that day, he's an old man. 
And here's something he preaches to Parliament now. November 1382. Since Jesus Christ shed his blood to free his church, I demand its freedom. I demand that everyone may leave those gloomy walls, the monasteries within which a tyrannical law prevails, and embrace a simple and peaceful life under the open vault of heaven. I demand that the poor inhabitants of our towns and villages be not constrained to furnish a worldly priest, often a vicious man and a heretic, with the means of satisfying his ostentation, his gluttony, his licentiousness, of buying a showy horse, costly saddles, bridles with tinkling bells, rich garments and soft furs, while they see their wives, children and neighbors dying of hunger. Never did endear himself to the church. Well, he said that to the House of Commons, but praise God, nothing significant happened and came of it as far as persecution of Wycliffe is concerned. But he no sooner made this petition to Parliament than an assembly of bishops, university professors, priests, and other people called him before them to answer for some of his views. He was weakened by age, by hard work, by many trials and much persecution. But he came before them, an old, weak man, and powerfully defended himself and finished with these words, the truth shall prevail. He spoke those words before this assembly that were there to get him. And then just as Jesus walked through his enemies who were there to kill him without them raising a hand, Wycliffe just walked out of the court and not one of his enemies dared raise a hand against him. He was living peacefully among his books and congregation when another blow was aimed at him. The Pope summoned him to Rome to appear before that papal tribunal which had shed so much blood of its adversaries in centuries gone by. He was seriously ill. It was impossible for him to obey the summons of the Pope. But once again, Providence rescued him from the church by dividing the Roman Catholic Church between two popes. Had two heads, two infallible heads. <laughs> Each of them direct from St. Peter. It's called the Babylonian captivity of the, of the church. There was one pope called Clement VII who was supported by France and Scotland and, and part of Spain and part of Germany, Clement VII. Then there was Urban VI, who was supported by Italy, England, Germany, Sweden, Poland, and Hungary. And these two popes now, each one of them considered himself the head of the church, and they were always abusing and excommunicating each other. In the meanwhile, Wycliffe just went on peaceably preaching the gospel and uh, taking advantage of the situation. He knew imprisonment was going to come sooner or later, but the Babylonian captivity, the papacy, kept it from happening. Wycliffe didn't die a martyr. The war between the two wicked popes left the faithful disciple of the Lord in peace. He continued to preach in his church in Lutterworth until December 29, 1384, when in the midst of his congregation he was stricken with paralysis. Forty-eight hours later, died. His body was buried in the Lutterworth Church Cemetery. However, after two councils of the Roman Catholic Church declared him to be heretical in 1413 and condemned him as the leader of heresy 
1415, his body was exhumed, burned along with all of his books, and his ashes thrown into the River Swift, which flows into the River Wye, which flows into the River Severn, which empties into the ocean. And like his ashes, his doctrine spread throughout all the earth. Now, what's the impact of Wycliffe? Let me quote for you Daubigny. Thus, in the death of Wycliffe, was removed from the church one of the boldest witnesses to the truth. The seriousness of his language, the holiness of his life, and the energy of his faith had intimidated the papacy. Travelers relate that if a lion is met in the desert... It is sufficient to look steadily at him, and the beast will turn away from roaring from the eye of man. Wycliffe had fixed his eye on the papacy, and the terrified papacy left him in peace. Hunted down unceasingly while living, he died in quiet, in life and death, a faithful witness to the truth of the word of God. With John Wycliffe, the Reformation in England had begun. Wycliffe is the greatest of the English reformers. He was, in fact, the first reformer of English Christendom. If Luther and Calvin are the fathers of the Reformation, Wycliffe is its grandfather. I want to read to you some of his Calvinism. Now, that's an anachronism because Wycliffe lived 200 years before Calvin. But let me give you a summary of uh, some of the things he believed. This is in Daubigny. If the man is admirable, his teaching is no less so. Scripture, which is the rule of truth, should be, according to his view, the rule of the Reformation. And we must reject every doctrine and every precept which is not rest on that foundation. He declared that to believe in the power of man and the work of regeneration and the new birth is the great heresy of Rome. And from that error has come the ruin of the church. Conversion proceeds from the grace of God alone, and the system which ascribes it partly to man and partly to God is worse than Pelagianism. Christ is everything in Christianity. Whoever abandons that fountain, which is ever ready to impart life and turns turns to muddy and stagnant waters, is a madman. Faith is a gift of God. It puts aside all merit and should banish all fear from the mind. The one thing needful in the Christian life and in the Lord's Supper is not a vain formalism and superstitious rites, but communion with Christ according to the power of the spiritual life. Let Christians submit not to the word of a priest, but to the word of God. In the primitive church, that is the early church, there were but two orders, the deacon and the elder. The sublimest calling which man can attain on earth is that of preaching the word of God. The true church is the assembly of the righteous for whom Christ shed his blood. So long as Christ is in heaven, in him the church possesses the best pope. It is possible for a pope to be condemned at the last day because of his sins. Should men compel us to recognize as our head a devil of hell? Such were the essential points of Wycliffe's doctrine. It was the echo of the doctrine of the apostles, the prelude to that of the reformers. So here you see a man who lived 200 years before the Protestant Reformation in the 1300s who translates the Bible into English. 
is also has the same views that we have in the Westminster Confession of Faith and you'll notice was even a Presbyterian in church government. Now what happened to his followers after his death? The Lollards, the Tares. Well, a history of the Lollards in the 13 and 1400s and early 1500s would have to be divided into two eras. You have the earlier Lollards and the latter Lollards because they're two two different emphases. The early Lollards, the people that lived and preached that were appointed by Wycliffe to spread the gospel all, all over England and beyond, experienced a great setback when Wycliffe's writings was condemned by the church and were tremendously discouraged when Wycliffe himself died. But even then, up until 1401, they continued a steady stream of tracts and pamphlets in English pouring forth from their pens, presenting the gospel of Christ to Englishmen. Several of these early Lollards were threatened with being burned at the stake for their views. And here's the difference between the early Lollards and the later Lollards is that whereas many of the earlier Lollards were threatened with being burned at the stake, they were not ready to be martyrs. And so many of the early Lollards recanted when they were threatened with death and turned their backs on biblical doctrine. But now lest you be quick to judge, it'd be a terrible thing to be burned at the stake. The later Lollards, that is throughout the 1400s and on into the 1500s, were great and courageous men. They kept the light of the truth burning brightly in Great Britain through their preaching, even though they faced persecution and martyrdom. Many of these later Lollards were tortured and burned at the stake during the reigns of Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, all of whom were committed to crushing Lollardy and the doctrines of John Wycliffe. As much as I love the play Henry V by William Shakespeare, Henry V hated the Lollards. The first English martyr to be burned at the stake, it's a good little trivia point as well as something to praise God for, the first English martyr to be burned at the stake was in 1403, and his name was William Sawtree. And they asked him, do you adore the cross of the Christ? Will you kiss it in typical Roman Catholic fashion? Said, no, I don't adore the cross of Christ. I adore the Christ of the cross. Henry IV forced Parliament to pass a statute to suppress heresy, which authorized the burning of heretics. Now, this isn't Spain. This isn't Italy. This isn't some Islamic country. This is England. And the king of England, Henry IV, passes a law authorizing the burning of heretics from the stake, at the stake. Henry V expands this law. It remained in law and in effect through the reigns of Henry VI and Henry VII. Henry VIII uh, repealed it, although he also tortured uh, reformers. Mary, as you can imagine, the Bloody Mary, revived it and killed many more. Elizabeth repealed it, though she still persecuted the church. And while it remained in effect, many, many people, young and old, male and female, suffered torture and imprisonment and death. But despite the severe persecution of these Wycliffeite preachers, these Lollards, in the 14 and 1500s, the the, the pre-Reformation gospel of Wycliffe continued to spread mainly among common working people in Great Britain. 
Now, remember, he died in the late 1300s. In 1422, under Henry VI's reign, there was still large congregations of Lollards in various places of England. When it was, it was a capital crime to be a Lollard, there still were large congregations of Lollards. Not only that, but Lollards built schools so they wouldn't have to put their children in anything but pre-Reformation schools while Lollardy was a capital crime. And you think it's rough putting our kids in Christian schools today. In 1450, now we're talking 70 years or more after, after Wycliffe's death. In 1450, there was a bishop who wrote a book in English. Now, why would a bishop think he'd have to write a book refuting Lollard doctrine in 1450 if there wasn't, if Wycliffe doctrine wasn't still a threat to the church and there wasn't still people who believed it? Moreover, why do you think, instead of writing in Latin, this bishop would write a book refuting Wycliffe in English? Because many of the followers of Wycliffe were highly educated and literate people. You look at the registers of the persecuting bishops and you'll find that even into the 1500s, as late as 1521, many Lollard, Wycliffe congregations still existed throughout England. 1521. Now what happened in 1516, 14, 15, 16, 17? The Reformation began. And so... The Reformation in England in the 16th century was built on the congregations and family in England still clinging to the doctrine of a man who'd been dead for 200 years. We'll stop tonight. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, for the encouragement of this great cloud of witnesses who surround us. May their example enable us to run with patience the race that is set before us. For Christ's sake, amen. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.